Good morning. Good morning. Better? <laughs> uh, honey, the answer is no uh, on Trisha's toy Aussie. No. No. It's all I can think about. <sighs> I don't like being up here. This feels weird. Of course, there's better better eye contact with the balcony folk, which need it the most. That's why you guys are up there. So, <laughs> See you. I see you. You guys all have your swords, right? Your weapons. Uh, go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Let's start in verse 41 and read. So, Acts 2, 41. So those who received His Word, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as anybody had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. About four weeks ago, uh, the last time I preached, um, it ended up being a pretty controversial message. And one thing that I always try to do with myself is, is top myself. Uh, I, w- I want to exceed um, what I've done the last time. And so as I looked at this text, I'm thinking, you got to be kidding me. Because it allows us to talk of, about the benefits and, and, and the joys of communism and socialism. And you guys were supposed to laugh. I'm not serious. So, yeah, there, there we go. I'm not that controversial. Not that dumb yet. So, um, so actually what's going to happen is I, I was supposed to take this whole section. And then um, when I was done preparing it this week, um, like if I were to take it, we would be here till like three this afternoon. So uh, what we're going to do is, is I think we're going to just take verse 42. Sometimes you just need to pull the car over and park it. You know what I'm saying? And, and I think that this is one of those texts uh, worthy of us pulling the car over for a minute. Um, and so we're going to take one verse, and then I think these guys are going to allow me to to come back next week and, and finish the the text in here, uh, since I already put a little bit of time into it. Um, so we'll talk about communism next week. Um, um, many of you have had friends, people, strangers, family members, at some point or another, say, you know, where do you go to church? And um, if you call this place your home, your answer would be this, you know, this place called the door, if you're willing to admit it, uh, the door. Um, and if it's, if it's someone who, um, I don't know, has their interest a little bit piqued, they might follow that up with why. Why do you go to the church that you go to? And you can answer that right now. Within yourself, why do you? If if you call this your home, if this is where you you serve and you love and you do life and uh, you pour out, 
Um, why? Um, I, I like to ask people this question. I don't, I don't think it's challenging. I think it's challenging in a good way. And I've come to a point over the last 10 years or so where I'll ask people that. Not only like, where do you fellowship or where do you attend, but why? And it's not because I'm trying to steal anybody away from their church. I'm genuinely interested. It tells me something about both the church possibly that they go to as well as them as Christians, as followers of God. And some of the most common responses uh, that I hear are uh, because it's big. Uh, there's a lot going on, or because it's small. I was talking to uh, a young man a, a couple weeks ago. I had him over in my living room, great Christian young man, been in the same church for years because his family has been in that church, and it's a little house church that they're in. And um, I, I, I know that there's kind of this air about that church, uh, a little bit of a self-righteousness, which a lot of times comes with small house churches. Usually there's, there's, there's this thing somewhere that's like we've got things figured out a little bit better than the rest of them. We're doing things right. I don't want to say cult. Uh, I think they're, they, they love the Lord. But he's in one of these churches, and he was going on and on about some of his frustrations that he was having there. And he's venting this to me. And so I prayed with the young man, and I'm trying to encourage him. And then finally I just said, why do you... Go to that church. And he like completely exhaled and looked at the ground like he had never been asked that and he had never thought about that to himself. It's just something that he's always done. It's just where his parents had always taken him. And finally he says, because it's small. And I'm thinking, that's the best you can do with that? Because it's small. You know? People like going to churches because it's big, because it's small, because the pastor's really funny is one of the number one that I hear. Now, we have a, a funny pastor here, okay? Uh, the difference between our funny pastor and everyone else's funny pastor is that our funny pastor is not doing it to be funny. He just is. <laughs> Furthermore, there's actual substance underneath his humor. He's, there's substance, there's depth. And so we give Brent the hall pass. We like Brent. We love his teaching. We love his humor. Don't change a thing. But that's the number one that I hear from people. This guy's funny. Music's really good. One of the number ones. Good worship. Right? Or great children's ministry. And not all these are completely invalid, right? You know, even location. I go there because it's down the road. I don't have to go far, which is why half of you go here. You'd rather be at that church in Bend. Okay, that was a joke, too. <laughs> See how funny I am? <laughs> That's why I try not to be funny. Right there. There's something that each of these popular answers to why someone goes to a certain church, there's something in common with all of them. And that is that they're all, on some level, consumeristic. It doesn't mean they're all bad. But every one of them is a little bit consumeristic. And I get it. When we had kids that were young, like that became a thing. Where it's like not only about what our, where do we need to be, but where do we need our kids to be as well, right? But these responses have self-need in common. Uh, self-want, self-preference. And I mention this because 
Um, this is what church has become to most people these days. And the church has, in a lot of ways, become just yet another place, ultimately, that's there to please and meet our needs. But this isn't exactly what God had in mind when He birthed the church. Last week, we saw the gospel get preached, and we saw people get saved. That's another way I feel really embarrassed this morning. I'm going to handle one verse. Pastor Brent handled like 40, and he did it with skill. (laughs) It was done really well. This week, we're going to see the response or the result of what those people are now about as a result of meeting Jesus. This is kind of the cause and effect. Cause, the gospel goes out and it interrupts a bunch of people's lives. And the effect is that people are now bound together as disciples doing what disciples do. Doing what Jesus' followers do. And when I read this passage, there's something there that makes me think, these were the good old days. I don't know if you do that when you look at this passage. You know, we've got to get back to the good old days of the church And I've heard others say this, and I've said this many times to other people. Like, that's what it should look like. And I think in a lot of ways, it should. Let's admit it, there's something about this passage that's extremely attractive. There's something about this passage that makes you go, I want to be a part of that. I want to attend that church. I want to experience what those guys were experiencing. Now, don't get me wrong, the church has always been imperfect. From the beginning, it's always had its problems, it's always had its challenges, it's always had its personalities and its upsets. But something here seems pure and right and fresh and uncorrupted compared to what we often see today. There's something uh, that I see here, or actually I should say I don't see here in this passage, that I, that I think... Uh, speaks to some of that. And that, uh, one of the things that's so appealing here to me is that it seems that it's baggage free. Like there's no baggage. Um, back in the day, I used to say to myself, if I ever plant, I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna make it look like what it looked like there in this passage. You know what I didn't account for? The fact that this is the only time in the history of the church that it was able to look like that. This is the only time in the history of the church that they were able to come together as the church without church baggage. We can't reproduce that. We all come in here with our our luggage. And some of you come in here with a lot of (laughs) carry-ons. Like, exceed your limit. (laughs) They were able to be baggage-free because it was new. It had no history. How many times have you heard this from somebody in your life, this phrase, I've had a bad church experience. And you'll usually hear it from someone who's no longer going to church. And it's like, well, well, aren't you unique? You know what I mean? You don't, you don't say, you know, that's like saying I had a bad life experience, you know, when you're, when you're 40 or 50 years old. We've all had bad church experiences. It's part of what comes with the deal. But the worst one that I think a pastor can hear is, this is the way we used to do it at our church. And we do hear that sometimes. When we planted this church almost eight years ago, we had a rule. (laughs) 
And I'm not saying it was a great rule, but in some ways it was a decent rule. And that was it. We had a no... Um, <laughs> this is going to sound really bad. I'm going to try to word this carefully. We had a no Christians from other church policy. So we used to call it like transfer growth. So if you were going to another church, like already, you were not allowed at the door. And people would come. And we'd say, where did you come from? Thank you for coming. You know how to pray for us. Now go back. <laughs> like the door, the door swung. Both, both doors were wide open at the door. The front and the back door. Um, our, our, our thought was, and this is partially because of this passage and, and what I'm talking about, what we were trying to, to recreate. Because we saw that sometimes the, the greatest obstacle to the church being missional and effective in mission is other believers. Because they only care about what time the church service starts and ends, how you do communion, how often you do communion, what kind of songs you're singing. It's, it's stuff that we don't have time for, quite honestly. And the next thing you know, you're, you're pulled completely off purpose and mission. And so we had this little core group when we planted. And there were some believers in there, praise God. We needed some believers to start a church. Okay. But what was cool is we did those first few years as a result of that, we saw a lot of uh, radical conversions. We saw a lot of people who wouldn't normally walk into a church come because our, our sight was clear. We knew why we existed and what we were there to do. And it was far from perfect. And it was extremely messy. And before we knew it, as we grew pretty quick, we knew we were in over our heads and we needed some believers <laughs> to help us disciple these people that were coming in. So we, uh, that's why we, we, we kind of did that when we started. But for us, we all have our baggage, don't we? As we've gotten bigger, we've gotten more baggage. And knowing that, I think the best thing that we can do as a congregation is, is to learn to leave it at home. Okay? Please, please don't come here with the intention of making this place better according to you. Please do not come here and attempt to make it more preferable for you or pleasing to you or comfortable or familiar for you. Because the truth is that the church does not, never has, and never will exist for you. It exists for us. And more than that, for Him. If we want to experience some of the magic that we see in this text, we need to understand that a healthy church leaves its baggage at home. Having said that, four things here that a healthy church does and they're mentioned here. In fact, there, there are four things that the church devoted, I like that word, devoted themselves to. And devoted means to fully give yourself over to. It means to do with purpose. Number one, the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to apostolic teaching. Um, this is largely lost 
I'm not saying it doesn't exist because it does. But in a lot of ways, the face of the pulpit in this country has changed. We can walk into most churches and hear practical self-helps. We can walk into most churches and hear five ways to be happier. We can walk into most churches and be given a list of things to walk out of there and do because we all like things to do. And the Bible gives us plenty of that. A lot of it's become tied directly to just pop culture, things that are popular, how to recycle better. This is a real sermon I heard. Won't mention the church. How to be healthier. Even how to be more prosperous, how to be more successful. Sermons in many ways have largely become skits. And I feel funky about that one because... Sermons have largely become skits where apostolic preaching is not the purpose and the goal, but entertaining a crowd is. And in that, the church has become largely a celebritized, it's not a real word, but I like it, driven people, rather than an orthodox driven people. We want a big personality. We want a great orator. We want a larger-than-life character, rather than a larger-than-life Jesus. And as a result, apostolic preaching and teaching and the need for it has faded into the shadows, only to be replaced with the newest, hippest entertainer and ear tickler of the day, where the main objective is to tell people something that appeals to their flesh on some level so that they will continue to fill seats. I've heard this phrase so many times over the years, I have no idea where it originated. But wouldn't you know, as I'm looking at this text and preparing for this this week, it popped up on my feet again. It's perfect. The quote is this. What you win people with is what you win people to. That's worth writing down. What you win people with is what you win people to. When I was, um, I don't even know why I thought of this. This is a stupid analogy. I'll just say that right now. But this is all I could think of when I'm, when I'm meditating on this this week. When I was young, uh, we lived in Pomona. And, uh, uh, my mom, every single Saturday, would, um, would go and meet with her mom, my grandmother, in Whittier, where my grandmother worked. And my grandmother worked in Whittier in a J.C. Penney. And that J.C. Penney was in a mall. And at that time, J.C. Penney's had cafeterias. It was the weirdest thing. So every single Saturday, like my mom would go meet her mom. Uh, it was like a half hour drive from us to there. And they would sit in this cafeteria and have soup and like just catch up on things. And my mom would always make me go. She would always, and I was always like, I don't want the car ride. I don't want to sit there while you and grandma do whatever you do in that booth. You know what I mean? And eat soup. I don't want to eat at J.C. Penny, you know what I mean? And uh, and so um, she she would say she would say I'll take you to get a donut. So there's this little donut shop like right when you walked into the mall. There was a Winchell's right when you walked into the mall. And my thing, my uh, my kryptonite is like the the little cake donuts with the white icing and the rainbow sprinkles. As a kid, right? And so every week I would throw this fit to go. Every week she'd come, she'd be like, we're going to see grandma. And I'm like, I don't want to go. And I'd throw a fit and she'd be like, donut when we get there. And I'd be like, all right, I'll tolerate it. And I would go. You know what I mean? 
I went for the rainbow sprinkled donut. Okay. I didn't make those trips because I wanted to follow fellowship with my grandma. Uh, I made those trips because I wanted a rainbow sprinkled donut. And the church is full these days of rainbow sprinkled donuts. Told you it was a dumb analogy. If there was ever a point where that donut went away, where my mom stopped going, I'll get you that donut, I wouldn't have gone. I would have gone away. You know what I mean? Bottom line is this. If the church is not winning people with Jesus, then we're not winning people to Jesus. We're winning them to something else. And I don't want that on my hands. And I don't want that on my head if it's me. If it's excitement, then it's excitement. If it's professionalism, then it's professionalism. If it's being cool, then it's being cool. If it's incredible music, then it's incredible music that they're winning people to. But if it's Jesus, then it's Jesus. And guess what people who have been won by Jesus want? More Jesus. This is Acts 2.42 in a nutshell. A true church of Jesus will move the amplifiers and the skinny jeans and the fog machines and the props and the banners from center stage. And it will pull the pulpit out from the shadows and bolt it to the center of the room. Where the Word of God will rest firmly. Where nothing will overshadow it. The Word of God, apostolic preaching, has got to be the main attraction. I want you to notice something. That in this Spirit-filled congregation, the people didn't abandon the study and proclamation of God's Word because the Spirit was at work. Rather, they were drawn to God's Word because the Spirit was at work. Do you see that? The Spirit of God is about the things of God. <laughs> if we're being led by the Spirit in our lives, guess where it will lead us to? To want to hear from Him. To want to learn from Him. To want to know Him. And it's, it's so funny to me because you've got the Pentecostal charismatic group, right? Sect of Christians over here and all their emphasis is on the spirit. You know what I mean? How do we walk more in the spirit? How do we follow the spirit? How do we see the spirit work and move and do more things in our life? Almost every single one of those friends that I have are not sound when it comes to scripture. And then you've got this other side of my conservative buddies and yours. And they're like afraid if the Spirit would work in their life. They don't want anything to do with that guy. He's too kooky. You can't control it or bolt it down, so we can't take... But they're solid in the, in the Word. And what we need is the chocolate and the peanut butter to come together. The Spirit of God, if we're being led by the Spirit of God, if we're listening to the Spirit of God, 
Guess where he's going to point to. He's going to point to the Word of God. He wants us to know our Bibles. He wants us to fall in love with our Scriptures. He wants us to be devoted to His Word. They devoted themselves to the teachings of the apostles. It means that those who were present in the church wanted to hear what God had to say. Not a personality, not an entertainer, but God. And a true and a healthy church will do this. It will exalt Him. It will preach Him. It will shine the biggest and the brightest light that it has on Jesus. And you know what? This is the the pastor's primary responsibility. This is my primary responsibility here, and Terry's, and Brent's. This devotion to apostolic preaching so that you will in turn be devoted to apostolic preaching. That's where lives are transformed and changed permanently and eternally. Right? My job is to take this pulpit and turn it into a cross. A healthy church is devoted to apostolic teaching and preaching. This is the rainbow sprinkled donut right here, guys. Okay? Number two, fellowship. They devoted themselves to fellowship. Fellowship equals, this is all gonna be, this is gonna be a little more painful. Fellowship equals partnership. It equals participation. This means that you're present. It means that you're available. It means that you're active. It means that you're interactive. This is social intercourse. Fellowship is relational one anothering. Guess who said that? Me. Because it's not a word. Here's how vital fellowship is. 1 John 1.3 That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. What's John saying there? He's saying that to be bound together in Christ, to be bound together with Christ, is to be bound together with each other. That's what John is saying. This is something much bigger than ourselves. There's no room for individualism in the church. And we're going to talk about that next week. If we ignore that, if we blow this off, if we act as if our fellowship is no big deal or optional, we're in a very real sense denying that which Christ has made us. That's a pretty strong statement. Listen to this. I love the way that Tony Merida puts this. Out of our common fellowship with the Father through Jesus, we enjoy fellowship with our spiritual brothers and sisters. If we are out of fellowship with Christ, then they will be out of fellowship with the church. And if people are out of fellowship with the church, Jesus' people, that is an indicator that they must be out of fellowship with Jesus. That's heavy. That's how strong the Christ-Church union is. And this is the part where I hear cries and objections, even from inside myself. Because I'm so selfish. It's what I'm best at. It's, it's really messy and difficult and frustrating dealing with relationships, especially the closer they get. It's so, so much easier to love from a distance on my own terms. 
But the church has called us to much more than that. It's called us to, as Dave Schaefer would say, close contact Christianity. That's what it is to be a part of the church. It is all up in your grill type of relationships. Okay? With love, of course. But it's close. It's not distant. I cannot tell you how many times I hear the card played, me and Jesus is all that really matters. Jesus is all that matters. I don't need the church. I do church in the mountains. I do church on the lake. I do church walking on the beach. I do church when I listen to Christian radio. That's neat that you're acknowledging God while you do those things, but no, you're not. You're not doing church. It's not a substitute. Church, by definition, is the assembly of the saints. The assembly. And assembly, by definition, is the coming together. Coming together. It's the corporate collective of God's chosen people coming together. It's one anothering with other believers. You see, having true and full fellowship with God happens when we have true and full fellowship with His people. Because that's how He set it up. There is no substitute. The early church not only didn't question relational intimacy, they devoted themselves to it. Because a healthy church is devoted to fellowship. Number three, the breaking of bread. They devoted themselves to apostolic teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship. They devoted, devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. This one's rad. Gluttony is bad. Food is rad. Okay? Gluttony, gluttony is bad. Food is rad. That was dumb. <clears throat> there are vehicles that we have that God has given us that facilitate and drive relationship or fellowship. And I know no better vehicle under God's blue sky than food. And Jesus, we see this with Jesus too, don't we? How much of Jesus' life did He spend eating? Food facilitates fellowship. Guess which home group is the most attended, the most anticipated every single month? The one where there's food. Eat night. Right? You know why? Because food is rad. And you guys are better with food than you are without it. You agree? The Phyllises do this thing. On Sundays, and it's stinking cool. And guess what the agenda is? Come together and eat. It works. It's beautiful. It's a time that we recommend highly you go to next time they do it. There's nothing on the schedule book that says we're going to show up and we're going to go bump, 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 bump. We're going to tackle. We're going to make sure we get to all these things. You show up and you eat. And then you sit next to people that you normally don't sit next to. And you have gospel community. You have gospel community that can't be planned. That is fully spontaneous. That is spirit-led. And it's good. It's rich. It's deep. It's loving. I don't know why food helps do that. But it does. You guys should look for as many excuses as you can whenever you can to eat. It's my kid's birthday. Let's get together and eat. 
It's not their birthday. Let's get together and eat. Like anything, anytime, eat, eat, eat. I believe a church that eats together all the time is a healthy church. These guys were devoted to breaking bread. But this isn't just about food itself. There's this other thing that Jesus did that changes our meals forever. From ordinary to extraordinary. Because the Last Supper, the night which He was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and He broke it. And He said, this is My body for you. And then He took the cup and He said, this is My blood that is poured out for you. What does this mean? It means that Jesus institutes gospel into our meal. His redemptive work into our eating. Food together for believers is a a celebratory means of grace. It's a gospel gift that God has given to us as often as we do it. Do what? Eat together in His name. We're going to do it together if I ever get done. And I, and I want you to understand that there's nothing really appealing about the table that we're going to walk up onto. Because the bread is like the size of a quarter, which isn't going to fill me up. And the cup is that big, and it's not really going to quench my thirst. Back in the day, when they had the Last Supper, when Jesus instituted it, it was a meal. When you see in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul bringing up and talking again about communion, right? And there were people that were having problems that weren't discerning the other people that were coming for communion. Why? Because it was a huge spread. And obviously, for practical reasons, it's hard for us to come together and do that kind of a spread here on Sundays when we're all assembled corporately. It's just not practical. And so we do it this way. But I want to encourage you, That when you sit down at a big meal to feast, that it is as good a time as any to remember the body and the blood of Christ with your friends. Jesus changed the meal. Jesus changed the food on our behalf. Again, Tony Meredith says, the apostles preached to the ear about Jesus, but the table preaches to the eye about Jesus. I like that. This is the gospel when we approach it. This isn't just some weird mystical thing that the church decided to add to its worship service. This is actually the centerpiece of the gospel to our eyes when we come and we ingest that. We're ingesting the work of Christ. We're saying, that's mine. Thank you, Jesus. What you did is for me. Thank you, Jesus. It preaches the gospel. It tells us why we have a righteousness now that is not our own. It tells us why we have gone from enemy of God to friend and child every time we come to this table. It is not, and I know that this could be controversial, it is not a time for you to drudge up all the ways that you have sinned this week so that you can feel good and guilty before you come. That actually undoes. It actually flips upside down what the table is meant for because the table preaches gospel. When we take it, it says, forgiven. And these guys were devoted to the breaking of bread. 
Healthy church breaks bread together. And when it does, it remembers Him. And number four, the prayers. Not just prayers, the prayers. We'll get to that in a minute. (laughs) Bottom line is this, a healthy church, is that right? A healthy church is a praying church. A healthy church is a praying church. Why? Because when you pray, you get things? No. Because a praying church is a dependent church. A church that's truly dependent on God and not themselves is ridiculously strong and healthy and alive. Someone once said the early church had few earthly resources, but that didn't keep them from shaking the world for Christ because they had heavenly resources. That's prayer. How do we tap into heavenly resources? Prayer. You know what kind of battle we're in? A spiritual one. We do not fight against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and the cosmic powers that are over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. The church is up against things that are bigger, badder, and scarier than it is. And if that's true, then we need to go to the one who's bigger, badder, and scarier than they are. Therefore, we must go to God. We must call upon God. This is what we call air war. There's ground war that the church engages in. This is the breaking of bread. This is fellowship. This is uh, evangelism and witnessing, okay? But then there's air war. And this is air war. Prayer is like a bat phone. Got any Batman fans? It's like a bat phone. You know what I mean? All right, Randy got that. Uh, it gives us... <laughs> It gives us, the church, access to exclusive powers that are beyond us. And it changes things, not because of our abilities in prayer, but because of Him who is on the other end of the line. There's this movie back in the... Uh, I love this. Um, called We Were Soldiers. I think it was like in the 90s. And Mel Gibson uh, had about uh, to do with the Vietnam conflict, right? And so Mel Gibson's like this platoon leader, and he, he takes his platoon, and they get dropped behind enemy lines in the jungle in Vietnam. They knew that one of the biggest battalions of, Viet- of the Vietnamese army was somewhere in that area, but they didn't know where. And they dropped them in. And long story short, as the movie goes on, they soon find out that they actually dropped on top of this battalion. They were dug into the grounds, and they were completely surrounded and overwhelmed with numbers. And there's this point when the battle ensues, and it's not going well. And these guys are dying left and right. They're just getting murdered. And the Vietnamese army's just pushing them back, pushing them back, until it's the end. There is nowhere else for these guys to go. They're crushed. And in that moment, Mel Gibson calls for his radio guy. And his radio guy comes running over and he grabs the radio and he says two words, broken arrow. And what that did is it sparked an aircraft carrier that is off the coast taking planes, launching planes off of it with napalm. And you see at that point these planes come across the battle line and they just stink and smoke it. And it changed the entire course of that battle that was lost. That's prayer for the church. There are things that we are incapable of 
And our God wants us to call on Him. There are things that only God can do. There are times that we need to get, and I would suggest to you, not in those moments of desperation, every single day, in everything that our lives consist of, we need to call broken arrow. Constantly. In our marriages. In our parenting. In our employment. In our friendships. Everything we're doing. Some of you, when you drive down the road, broken arrow, broken arrow, broken arrow, because you don't know how to drive. We need to be on the radio constantly because we are in a battle that is beyond us. But it is not beyond God. So pick up the radio and call. And we will watch God do miraculous things. This church didn't stand a chance. Do you realize that? What we see right here, 3,000 men, that's a, that's a stinking, that's a crazy good sermon. Okay? 3,000 men came. But these people had nothing. Everything was against them. And sometimes I scratch my head and go, this doesn't make any sense. That, that, that this that we're looking at right here in Acts chapter 2 turned into what it is now. All over the globe. People like you and I filling rooms, worshiping Jesus Christ. Why? Because God is on the other end of the line. He can handle the stuff that we cannot handle. Prayer is important and a healthy church is devoted to prayer. Now, it does say the prayers, and that's not a mistake. The is a definite article. You know what this means? You can steal prayers if you need to. They were praying specific prayers. And it's more than likely they were praying the prayers of the psalmist. You know that that's pretty much what that book is made up of, is prayers. If there are times in your life when you don't know how to pray, when you don't know how to bring out what it is you're feeling, crack open the Psalms and just let it rip. Because David knew how to talk into that radio. It's okay for us to steal prayers. When Jesus taught his disciples the Lord's Prayer, I believe that we see in that text that Jesus had every intention that they would learn that. So when does it become vain repetition? Here's when it becomes vain repetition, when it stops meaning anything here. When you stop believing what you're praying. It doesn't matter where the prayer comes from. I've heard some good prayers in my life, and I'll happily steal them and mean every single bit of them out of desperation. Those prayers are there for you. They're there for us. They're there for the church. A healthy church is devoted to prayer. And we probably ought to cut there. So um, next week we'll try to get through the rest of this text. I would love for you guys to ask yourselves the question we started with. Yeah, I go to the door. Why? We're not a perfect church. We're far from perfect. I'm far from perfect. Sometimes I'm sitting there going, why, don't, why am I even in the position I'm in? If I'm honest with myself. I'm a nobody. But I believe that what we're endeavoring to do, even in our imperfection, is to mimic this. Like, there's nothing better that we have to give you than Jesus. There's nothing better than the church ha- that the church has to offer than Christ. You can't top that. You can't beat that. Nobody has a greater need. So a church that is won by Jesus does things that disciples of Jesus does. We devote ourselves to what he taught. We devote ourselves to being bound together in him. 
We devote ourselves to prayer, talking to Him, communicating with Him, and we devote ourselves to breaking bread together, which is what we do now. This table is for you, not because of you. This table, His blood, His body, spilt, broken for you. Something He did for you to make you His. And this is the the entry point. This is the entry point to the family of God. If you're not part of this family, if you're an outsider, we will be up here afterward. Please come and talk. Please come and talk. Ask your questions. Let us pray with you. God, thank you that you took a few people with little resources and revolutionized the entire world for your glory. Thank you for making us a part of that, God. And now that we are a part of that, help us to do the things that followers do of you. Help us to not take lightly why we come here and what we need most when we come here. Help us to devote ourselves to these things because that's your good and perfect will for us. Thank you for being so good to us over the last seven and a half years. Thank you for every person that walks through here, God. I ask that you would uh, search and uh, and dig and minister uh, to each person in only the way that you can right now at this time as we look at the gospel on this table. We ask it in your name. Amen.